Hey, Forge family. In our last podcast, number one in our introduction to the book of Joel, I stated the confusion over the dating of this prophet's writing. The arguments for an earlier date, say 400 BC, is partially based on the view that Joel was quoting snippets of Amos, Micah, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. In a season when there was a temple in Jerusalem and there were surrounding walls around Jerusalem. Now, my study and preference for dating the prophet Joel is to invert that thinking, placing Joel in the mid-9th century, a hundred years before Isaiah, and that all those other prophets were quoting snippets of Joel by Holy Spirit. See, he is the first prophet to use the term day of the Lord. Other following prophets spoke of a day that was coming related to Yahweh's discipline of Israel and punishment of Gentile nations that had hated him and his people, Israel. Five times in the text of Joel, he used, quote, the day of the Lord, unquote, to emphasize what is coming, perhaps even coming in our time. Let's pray. Holy One, the prophet Joel was pouring out his message to those under the Mosaic Covenant. That covenant was conditional. Israel got blessed in proportion to their faithfulness to God and got disciplined in proportion to their disobedience. Lord, we are a company of followers that come to you under the new covenant, one that is set in place on our, be- on our behalf by the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Unlike your people, Israel, we have been given Holy Spirit to empower life in the kingdom so that righteousness, peace, and joy flow from our relationship with you and flow into and flow from you into relationships with others. Lord, give us eyes here in this prophetic text that we may see and hear what Holy Spirit is doing around us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Forge family. Let's all open the book of Joel, chapter 1, and begin with verses 1 to 3. The word of the Lord has come to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. This text is set in metric rhythm. It is Hebrew poetry. Like other prophets, Joel makes sure to give credit for his delivery to the one who prompted the message. It came from Yahweh, God of Israel. Joel commands that the elders hear this prophecy and also all the inhabitants of the land of Judah. The former would be those who, by means of oral transmission, tell the coming generations that the Lord had given the message of what was being said to them that day. The same command applies to all the inhabitants. Tell this to your sons who will tell their sons, etc. And what was it they were to tell? Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? 
what follows this introduction is a now account, a nearly present tense account of a plague of locusts and a drought. Verses 4 to 7 elaborate on this crushing blow that fell on Judah. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. And what the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. Awake, drunkards, and weep. And wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has invaded my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of a lion and its fangs of a lioness. It has made my vine a waste and my fig white. Excuse me, fig, uh, fig tree like splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. The branches have been become white. The natural phenomenon of locust swarms has befallen Judah. These desert grasshoppers have an ancient history. Their likeness may be found on Egyptian tombs of the 15th century BC, and it's safe to say that all the nations in the Middle East, the Horn of Africa, Egypt, the Arabian Peninsula, Pakistan, and India, all have ancient history with this plague. Pliny wrote that the locusts were so fiercely hungry that they chewed and scratched through wooden doors. <clears throat> Joel describes not four species of locust, but rather four stages of development in the lifestyle of this desert insect. See, those, those grasshoppers, those, these insects, they're, they're, always, they're always around. They're ubiquitous in those regions. But when the weather cooperates with heavy rainfall on sandy soil, the swarms of adult locusts mate, and the female locust bores a half-inch to four-inch deep hole and deposits 100 to 300 eggs. David Guzik of the Enduring Word blog reports that in 1915, a devastating plague of locusts covered what is modern-day Israel and Syria. The first swarms came in March, in clouds so thick they blocked out the sun. The female locusts immediately began to lay eggs, hundreds at a time. Witnesses say that in one square yard, there were as many as 65,000 to 75,000 eggs. In a, few week, in a few weeks, they hatched, and the young locusts resembled large ants. They could not fly yet and got along by hopping. They marched 400 to 600 feet a day, devouring every speck of vegetation along the way. After two more stages of molting, they became adults that could fly, and the devastation continued. Unquote. What those observers and reports from 1915 did not see was the gnawing stage that Joel described. <clears throat> it's a larval form, just hatched from the eggs, that moved both below and on the surface of the earth, eating root systems and any vegetation. Now, in my neighborhood is a fly that lays its eggs at the base of plants. When the eggs hatch, the larvae, sort of worm-like little hatchlings, begin to chew below the surface on the roots of the plant that they were, where the eggs were. I have stood in my garden next to a fully mature broccoli plant, ready to harvest it, and watched that broccoli plant fall over, completely cut off at the root by those larvae. 
That is what the gnawing stage of the desert locust does on a monstrous scale. The Hebrew word for the gnawers is gazam. As those larvae grow, they get a carapace, a leather-like protective outer cover on their body, and they have little wings that are almost invisible, but they cannot fly. They skitter and hop about, and when they move over the earth, it looks like the soil has come alive and is moving. The 1915 Syrian account describes them as looking like large ants because, you know, they, as they begin to cover hundreds of feet a day, they eat every green thing in their path and leave a scorched earth pattern behind them. The Hebrew word for these skittering, immature locusts is arbeth. This term is most widely used because it is the first form of locust that is visible, moving and devouring what is in their path. The locusts begin to move in vast, earthbound swarms. The third stage in the locust life, life cycle is one in which the little, small wings of the immature hopping mobile hordes drop away from their bodies as they molt, but they still cannot fly. However, they can climb almost every surface and invade every nook in homes, palaces, marketplace, stables, etc. They now have powerful legs with which to leap and bound about, eating every bit of vegetation they can grasp. Their spread accelerates. The Hebrew term for this stage is yalak. This stage can drive other animals mad. When locusts leap upon them and try to penetrate their nostrils, their eyes, etc. The final stage, the mature stage of the desert locusts is called hasil. And they now have two sets of wings. In 1875, different, it's a different species of locust, but in 1875, there were locust swarms in Canada and the United States that were larger than the state of California. If a square yard of sandy soil has up to 75,000 hatching eggs and a tiny swarm of these locusts cover one square kilometer, the four stages of locusts, okay? They daily consume the volume of crop, crops that would feed 35,000 people. Every day, 35,000 people. Because these flying insects move with the wind, they can cover 150 kilometers a day easy. In 2018 and 2019, there was a tropical series of cyclones that dumped heavy rainfall on the deserts of the Arabian Peninsula and the Horn of Africa. In January of this year, 2020, swarms three times the size of New York City have been seen. One measured 37 miles across. That would be as if a single swarm of locusts were to be driven by the wind and fly on an extended front from South San Francisco to San Carlos, moving east on the, on, the offshore, on the onshore winds. <clears throat> they might number billions in such a swarm. The ancient world described the sound of flying locust swarms to be like the sound of chariots. A roar. This year, 10 billion locusts have flown into the interior of African nations, including Somalia, Eritrea, Ethiopia, and Kenya in swarms. And similar numbers are ravaging Pakistan. It's not just a one-time event. If the swarms land on damp soil, 
they breed and the swarms multiply. That's happened three times already this year. The locust hordes leave human and animal starvation in their wake. Joel cries out, Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that's cut off from your mouth. The initial swarm in Judah had arrived before the grape harvest, probably late, late September, early October. Okay, The sweet wine was new wine, freshly pressed grape juice, effervescent, still fermenting, having a relatively high alcohol percentage. The land of Judah had become known as a land of drunkards. The Hasil, the mature locust, had flown in, pushed by east winds, and ravaged the vineyards and fig trees of Judah. Joel cries aloud to his listeners and likens the destruction of swarms of locusts to that of an invading force with lion's teeth and lion's savagery. Ancient Sumerian, Ugaritic, Egyptian, and Assyrian literature compared human armies to locusts. This ravaging horde had reduced Joel's fig tree to splinters, or another translation says, to a stump. Even the bark on the vines and trees had been consumed, leaving dead white branches. The first rains of the season in Judah usually fall in November. If the Hasil had found enough vegetation in Judah to hold them over until the rains, then they would have mated and deposited eggs in the wet soil of Judah to start the Gazam, Arbeth, Yelik, and Hasil cycle again. The late rains in Judah come in late January, February, perhaps in early March. So it's possible that again, the laying of eggs by the female locusts would have started a vastly multiplied plague of locusts up again in early spring. And that would match what Joel is describing. In verses 8 to 12, Joel shifts from observation to instruction. Yes, Judah has been devastated. Now, the prophet Joel has heard from Yahweh, and God has sent him with orders and directives to his people. Wail like a virgin, girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of your youth. The grain offering and the libation are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn, the ministers of the Lord. The field is ruined, the land mourns. For the grain is ruined and the, and the new wine dries up. Be ashamed, O farmers, and wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine dries up and the fig tree fails. The pomegranate, the palm also, and the apple tree, and all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. The classic mourning rituals of ancient peoples in the Middle East include removing or tearing one's garments and putting on super coarse, scratchy sackcloth made from the wool of black goats, somewhat like our burlap. Then dirt or ashes are poured on one's head. In this case, Joel instructs the nation to wail. Wail like a virgin 
who has been betrothed, waiting for the bride price to be paid, but whose husband-to-be has died. The Hebrew word for virgin is betulah, and is a figure of God's chosen people. Immediately in the next phase, Joel shifts to the spiritual implications of such a locust devastation. In this case, upon the daily worship in the temple. Each morning, priests would take the offerings from individuals as a bird offering of grain mixed with oil and wine. Symbols of the godly walk with God on a daily basis. Each of those elements spoke of a complete dedication of the one bringing the sacrifice, implying humble service to the Lord. As the libation offering was poured out before the altar, it was a statement that joy comes from the Lord and his service. Yes, in Joel's day, there was drunkenness, not careful keeping of the sacrificial order. Yes, men tried for artificial joy, not holy infilling. In the aftermath of the locusts, there were no resources for the daily offerings. Again, speaking to the break of covenant between Judah and the Lord. Almost parenthetically, in the middle of instructions, Joel reverts to the descriptions of the priests who mourn. They, they know that their worship is out of compliance with God. They also know that the tithes on which they live have been obliterated. Those who minister to the Lord, the Levites, the washerwomen, the wood carriers, the cooks, the weavers, etc., those around the temple complex, they were also mourning. <clears throat> then he points out the ruined fields, eaten to the roots and beneath the surface by the locust hordes. The whole land is mourning. What was once prosperous agriculture now is scorched earth. The grain crop has been eaten to extinction and the new wine harvest has failed. I noted that olive trees were just about the last thing that the locusts would eat, but they would devour them too if there was nothing else to munch down. In so doing, the locusts would eat the olive fruit first, then the leaves, and then the bark. No result, excuse me, the result is no harvest of olives with fresh oil. In verses 11 and 12, Joel swings back to emphatic instructions to those who were most bitterly affected. He says, Be ashamed, O farmers, and wail, O vine dressers, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. Now, it's thought that the word ashamed and the word destroyed are related by root. So here is a word play. Could also be translated, be devastated, O farmers. Joel is preaching to the choir. The farmers and the vine dressers were already exhibiting devastation because their harvest had been destroyed, and now that of the wheat and the barley also had been destroyed. Then Joel is back to observation. The vine dries up. The fig tree wastes away, as does a list of nourishing, refreshing plants and fruits, including the pomegranate, the palm, and apricot trees. See, um, Israel did not have apples as we know them, but, but uh, this is likely the apricot tree. Then comes two sentences of conclusion. 
all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. The vine and the fig tree are symbols of the blessed relationship of Judah to the Lord. The list of other refreshing fruit is a picture of spiritual refreshment and fruitfulness now all withered away. The possibility of a life full of joy that was inherited by each succeeding generation of Israel had been brought to a staggering halt. In the next passage of Joel that we will study, Joel makes it clear that the Lord, get that, that the Lord had sent the locusts. And it is a disciplining, punishing blow on Judah. He has not stepped back from his covenant with Israel, but is being faithful to his promises in Deuteronomy 28, in which he stated that if Israel is unfaithful to him, he will send the locusts. This was a now experience of the promised day of the Lord for Judah. Forge family, even as we're experiencing our own unprecedented COVID-19 invasion and seeing our economy shutter down to a halt while adding trillions of dollars to our national debt, the prophet is calling both to Judah and to us. Where right worship in Judah demanded offering elements and obedience to the Lord, right worship under the new covenant is an internal motion. Righteousness, peace, and joy in Holy Spirit rises within us as we are grateful for the Lord's presence, faithful to obey his word, and we humble ourselves before him and rejoice in him. All around us may be devastation, but our hearts are kept secure in him. Yes, we are a nation that was rejoicing over how good the economy was, but in a flash, many millions are now unemployed, stretched and stressed in unprecedented ways. And our news feeds emphasize severe illness and death. Let your righteousness and peace and joy overtop your property lines and your personal space. Let it flow out. As we have been allowed, as we were about to be allowed shortly uh, to leave self-quarantine status, pray for your neighbors as we prepare to walk about, as we shop, as we re-engage with work in America. Pray for those who are devastated and joyless. God has been preparing, a pre- been preparing a way to talk with them, to demonstrate before them. Let's pray. Lord God, Joel introduces the day of the Lord as it falls first on Judah. And in later chapters, he will point to the day of the Lord that comes against his foes. First Thessalonians assures us that we are not in that latter group. We are sons and daughters. As such, Lord, we cry out to you out of some suffering and limitation, knowing that you are preparing your bride to shine, your body to to demonstrate the very life of Christ, and your servants to speak forth to the lost 
of righteousness, peace, and joy in Holy Spirit and by means of Holy Spirit. Prepare us, Lord, for what is coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Forge, I love you. We'll be together soon. God bless you.